Welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish, two capital raising experts on a mission to demystify and equify the world of investment for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Listen in as they sit down with fundraising veterans and share with you the success stories and cautionary tales of outside the box capital raising. This is Capital Insight. Hello, and welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast. I'm Jenny Casson, and I'm here with my business partner, Michelle Timish. And we're so excited today to interview David Ferran and to have him as our guest. I was introduced to David uh, fairly recently, and I was just so intrigued to hear his story because he has on his website some very interesting information, including where he talks about the problems with some of the mainstream funding models that many of us are familiar with. And he says the way that most early stage investment funds allocate capital today is exacerbating our planet's greatest challenges. The thinking is outdated and the focus is too narrow and too short term. And I could not agree more. And I'm super excited to hear how David came to feel that way and what he's doing about it. So David, welcome. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us how you came to be doing the work you're doing? Sure, Jenny. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to be on your podcast. I'm always happy to talk about the work that we're doing at Tory Project these days. And uh, so, yeah, just a little bit on my background. Um, I came out of university all the way back in 1978. So I'm a bit of a dinosaur. And uh, upon graduating college, I immediately started my first company and, um, and very shortly thereafter found myself on, in my early 20s out on Sand Hill Road, uh, pitching deals and looking to raise my venture capital money. And ultimately, I was successful, did a couple of rounds of VC money, grew the business, was uh, lucky enough to be able to go out and raise a lot more money and bought a public company combined it with mine, turned it around, restructured it, and then went back out and did an IPO and, uh, and rode the wave on NASDAQ for a while until we were the victim of a hostile takeover. And uh, after that, I got into doing public company turnaround work, spent a decade doing M&A advisory work on Wall Street, uh, started a few more companies after that and sold my last one in uh, 2016. And that's when I turned my attention on some of, some of the problems we're facing. And uh, the result is this new fund that we're launching. Great. So David, tell us about that experience that you had in raising venture capital and how your own thinking has evolved uh, over time with regard to the uses of that capital and, and what it means to take it. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, first of all, I, I want to acknowledge that the people who invested in my companies over the years, the various venture capitalists were very good people. And, and I do want to emphasize that. I believe that the product is faulty and the system is flawed, but I don't blame the people behind it. In fact, um, I have great gratitude for um, how much support that I got from the venture capital community, even though I'm kind of railing against it these days. But, but really for me, what it was, it, because I raised my first VC money when I was in my early 20s, I really knew nothing about running a company. I mean, I had a big business degree, but, uh, 
back then they didn't really teach you all that much that you needed to know while you were in, in um, school. So it was really the venture capitalist that educated me on what my fiduciary duties were and how I had to go about navigating the challenges of a startup. And I didn't know it, but what they were teaching me was right out of Milton Friedman's shareholder primacy playbook. Uh, they taught me that you know, at the first sign of trouble, you need to cut back on your staff. Um, even at the hint of trouble, you wanna at least uh, roll back wages. And they taught me that basically everything in the business had to sacrifice to, um, uh, to support generating the highest possible financial return for the shareholders. And that's what they taught me. And I believed it. And I never questioned that there might be another way to go about um, running a business. And so I spent 35 years operating under what I thought was the model for capitalism, only to discover in my dotage that there was actually multiple forms of capitalism. And I just chose the wrong one. And, um, and that's what has resulted in um, me pivoting and changing my life's work and trying to, um, trying to change the way we do capitalism in America. And part of that is changing the way we allocate capital in America. Wow, that's an amazing story. So like, what was it that really made you realize all these things and, and change your philosophy about what type of capitalism you wanted to practice? That's actually a little bit embarrassing, but, uh, <laughs> but I will share it with you. Uh, when I sold my last company in uh, 2016, I sold it to a big Japanese public company. And they were concerned that, of course, I might do something competitive. And so I had a contract and, and it pretty much prohibited me from doing much of anything. Um, so I found myself with time on my hands and knowing that I was moving into the next and perhaps final chapter of my business career. And I decided to just take some time out. And, and think about what I really wanted to be when I grew up. And, and I wasn't thinking about this at all. I had all sorts of other ideas in mind. Um, but I was exploring how over the years and decades, I had developed as a human being, as a spiritual being, and through my personal growth work and spiritual growth work, I'd really evolved. But my thinking about business really hadn't evolved. And and I was aware of that, but not really too focused on it. And one day I was standing in a bookstore, which is a rarity. And I saw a book that I, I couldn't believe that the title of it was Conscious Capitalism. And I laughed out loud because nothing could be, you know, in my mind, more incongruous than, than consciousness and capitalism. I mean, the two just don't get it together. It's an oxymoron, or at least for my whole business life, it was an oxymoron. And uh, so I read the book. And as I was reading the book, I mean, light bulbs were going off. I was blown away by the fact that here I was 35 years into a career before I even knew that there was another form of capitalism out there. And in fact, when I read about stakeholder capitalism, which I, I prefer in, uh, in terms of the way of describing capitalism, stakeholder capitalism uh, really fit much better with my character, but I just never knew it existed. 
And so I started learning about stakeholder capitalism and uh, started realizing that there was definitely a better way to go about it. And, and as I got into that, I started realizing how much opposition there is to that form of capitalism by the people who currently control our financial sector. And, and I think that's really what got my energy up and got me motivated to do what I'm doing these days. Yeah, say more about that, David, about, about stakeholder capitalism and, and the perceived threat um, that the powers that be. I mean, obviously, the change is sort of always a cause for anxiety in, in, in our population for some people more than others, especially those who enjoy uh, reap the benefits of the status quo. So tell us a little bit more about how you see us transitioning to more of a stakeholder capitalism model for finance. Sure. The, the, the big challenge is that there is a belief out there, and it's a widely held belief that if one pursues stakeholder capitalism, there must be a sacrifice in terms of financial returns. And and the more people I talk to, the more I realize what a huge problem this is. Um, very intelligent, very highly experienced people are strongly hanging on to the belief that there's no way that you can go about creating value for all of your stakeholders without sacrificing value for your shareholders. And it's, it's that mistaken belief that people are clinging to that causes people to be somewhat hesitant to embrace stakeholder capitalism. And until we have sufficient data that, that is statistically significant and debunks that myth, it's just gonna be really hard because the people, that the people that are allocating capital feel that they've got a fiduciary duty to their investors and they need to invest it where they think they're gonna get the higher return. And, and that is in the conventional financial capitalism model that we're plagued with these days. Yes, and I think you would probably agree that the opposite is probably true, that the more you take care of all your stakeholders, the more value you build as a company uh, founder and uh, manager. But um, I would love to hear about the Tory project. What is it? and um, you know, tell us about the Tory project and also about the fund and how the fund addresses the issues that you have uncovered with the venture capital model. Sure. Uh, well, back in uh, 2016, when I started um, my exploration, I never would have guessed that Tory project would have been the result of it. But, you know, here we are. Um, and, uh, in 2018, we launched Tory Project. We actually formally um, registered in January of 2019. And it's a nonprofit. We're a California-based 501c3 and with the stated mission of accelerating the transition away from financial capitalism and towards stakeholder capitalism. So that's basically what we set out to do at Tory Project. And, and we're a work in process, right? Our first, um, our, our first assault, if you will, was on the educational sector. And, you know, 
I was highly troubled that I came out of school with such a uh, limited knowledge of entrepreneurship and capitalism and, and how it all worked. And I soon found out that while things are better today, um, they're not that much better. And so I realized that the first place that we have to go is we have to educate the next generation of entrepreneurs so that before they start their first business, they're aware of the fact that there are choices that they need to make about the form of capitalism, um, their approach to funding their businesses, and then their approach to operating their enterprise. And I wanna teach that. And so that's what we're doing at Tory Project. We're currently in the, the midst of our seventh cohort and we're creating a new generation of conscious entrepreneurs. And, and that program has been very well received. We've gotten a lot of very positive uh, feedback. And we've got people, we're starting now to get people from all over the world. In this cohort, we have two people from Africa. In the last cohort, we had one from Colombia and two from Mexico. Uh, so we're, we're starting to spread not just nationally, but internationally. And, and that's kind of exciting, but, um, but it's clear the deeper I dive into this, the more I understand that just educating the next generation of entrepreneurs and telling them they have a choice isn't sufficient because when they head out into the real world with what they've learned at Tory Project and go to raise capital, they're gonna run into the class of institutional investors that I ran into because they're still out there and they are by far, by far the dominant so supply of early stage capital is based on the old model. And um, they're comfortable with that model. And let's face it, the, the financial community loves financial capitalism because they're all about the profits and what's in it for them. And shareholder primacy says that they reign supreme over all other stakeholders. So if I was on Wall Street, you know, I would love the old-fashioned Milton Friedman financial capitalism, uh, but I'm not, so I don't. And um, so what we decided is that leaving these poor entrepreneurs to go out into the real world and do battle with classic venture capitalists was, you know, suboptimal. And we decided that we're not going to change the venture capital community to, um, to our way of thinking with words. The only way we're going to change um, early stage uh, capital allocation America is to demonstrate that not only is there a different way to do it, but there's a superior way to do it. And the net result of doing it that way is higher financial returns, not lower financial returns. So what we're setting out to do with our fund at Tory Project is act very different than a classic venture capitalist and beat the venture capitalists at their own game, which is financial return. It's so great to hear you say that. I, it's, I you get so frustrated listening to people think that that's the only way that that there is to go forward. And the fact that you're willing to take on the modeling because that's really what's missing, right? We need to model the solutions that we're advocating and stop begging people who are benefiting from a certain way to change their minds out of what the goodness of their hearts, right? You can't, you can't shame someone into an epiphany. 
So um, <laughs> congratulations to you. So tell us a little bit about um, how the fund is going to work. Are you going to invest in the companies that are part of your cohorts? How, how will that work? Right. Um, so first of all, the name of our fund is um, the Venture RBF Fund. And that tells you a little bit about our fund right there in that we're combining elements of venture capital investing, the good elements, and elements of revenue-based financing. And that's something that um, hasn't been done at scale before. And, um, and we're, to that, we're also adding a twist in that we're gonna deploy revenue-based funding for companies that have no revenues. And that is pretty much in revenue-based financing, that's heresy. Uh, but we think that by blending a combination of dilutive funding in the form of equity with non-dilutive funding in the form of um, RBF, we can um, minimize the dilution on the founders and you know, we can help them grow their business with the right form of capital at the right time. So that's one of the things that we're doing differently. Um, another thing that we're doing differently is, I would say certainly more than 95%, maybe even more than 99% of the venture capital funds in the world are closed end funds, typically with a life of, of 10 to 12 years. And they spend the first half of the fund investing uh, in companies and the second half of the fund harvesting their investments and typically, you know, VCs are involved in the company for anywhere from two to six years. And um, it, which is, it sounds like a long time unless you're running a company and trying to build it in that period of time. It really is a short-term approach. And because they need such a high rate of return um, to make up for all the zeros they take in the classic VC investing style, uh, they need they need the successful companies in their portfolio to hyper grow, and um, and we just think that that short termism in investing um, is is damaging on a lot of fronts, and you know forcing forcing entrepreneurs to sell their business in that short a period of time is also inconsistent with with teaching them about the long term positive effects of stakeholder capitalism. So we went to an open-ended fund. We have an evergreen fund, which means we can invest in a company um, in its earliest stages, and we could stay in for multiple generations if we wanted to. Uh, you know, we'll exit an investment when it makes sense to, make, to exit the investment, not because we've got a gun to our heads because we're operating a closed-end fund. So we think that that's gonna allow our um, entrepreneurs to think with that longer term perspective that's really required to make stakeholder capitalism work. Um, so, so we've addressed that. And then another um, aspect we're addressing with the fund is the issue of what kind of motivations does your provider of capital um, give you? And, um, and what we wanna do is use the power of investment capital to drive positive corporate behavior. We believe that Wall Street these days is behind the negative 
corporate behavior that's driving all of those externalities that we're railing against, environmental degradation, social injustice, racial injustice, you find at the core of that, it's being driven by the folks on Wall Street. And, um, and so we wanna do it in an entirely different way. And, um, and so what we've decided to do is tie the cost of our capital to the social impact that the companies we invest in have. And of course that took us down, you know, several blind alleys and uh, was really hard to figure out. But ultimately what we came up with is we believe that the um, B-Lab uh, certification process that results in companies becoming certified B Corps is really the best standard that's out there for whether a company is truly walking the talk of stakeholder capitalism, as opposed to just window dressing. And so what we've decided to do is for any of our companies that get B-Lab certified during the course of our investment, we're gonna rebate a significant portion of their cost of capital, and it's gonna be meaningful to them. And so the people that, we invest in who tell us that they're going to be stakeholder capitalists and then change their mind are going to end up paying a premium for the capital they get from us. And the entrepreneurs that follow through and drive their company through B-Lab certification are going to end up getting their capital at a discount. And so we think that that's something that um, that's going to have impact. And then the final thing is uh, the deeper we got into it, and it didn't take, it didn't take very long to realize just how unfair capital allocation is in America. And um, I think you guys know the statistics as well as anyone, but um, the vast, vast, vast majority of venture capital goes to white male college graduates. Females have been left behind. People of color have been left behind. Um, and we don't think that's right. So what we're doing is we're dedicating this entire first fund hundred million dollars to investing in uh, companies that are led either by females or by non-white males. And so those are the kind of the big highlights of what we're doing differently. So amazing. I'm so excited about your fund. Um, it's always really helpful to hear specific examples and stories. So I'm wondering if you have any examples of how the venture capital model can really hurt companies and can even hurt capitalism, you know, a lot of people call it a failure model because it's kind of built right into the model that most companies that receive the money will fail. So do you have any examples to share of kind of things that you've seen that made you realize how important it was to provide alternatives and then maybe an example of a company that got a different kind of funding and really benefited from that? One of, one of the problems that I'm seeing very, very clearly as I dive into this is the incredible power that the people on Wall Street in our financial sector have and how they're, how they're exercising that power by controlling the, um, the way our politics work in the United States. And, and they have other ways of exercising their power. So for example, uh, you're probably familiar with Etsy and um, you know, pretty well-known company. And another one is Danone. It, these are two companies that really embraced um, B-Labs, B-Corp status, stakeholder capitalism, 
and it really acted as a force for good. And they stood out because they were large and publicly traded uh, companies. And there's not many large and publicly traded B Corp. So these guys were really, really well respected. And in both cases, the uh, powers of, of the financial markets ganged up on the companies and forced the boards to get rid of the CEOs. And it really came down to the boards being, you know, having a gun to their head with activist shareholders saying, you know, if you don't want trouble, you're going to have to stop doing this stakeholder capitalism, get back to doing it the old fashioned way and get rid of this CEO. And in both cases, these large publicly traded companies buckled to tiny shareholders who were rabble rousing and got rid of the CEOs that were so responsible for all of the great things that the company's done. And it's just shocking to me that the financial community has the kind of power over the operation of our businesses um, that they have. Yes, I believe I've heard the statistic that up to half of CEOs are fired within the first five years or something. I think that's the statistic of, of venture back companies. So if you do take venture capital, just know you have a very good chance of getting fired from your own company. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I, I've had I've had entrepreneurs tell me they they can't fire me. It's my company. <laughs> I like to tell them I worked for a publicly traded company one time. And the founder's name was on the on the wall. It was the name of the company. And when there were rumors about the board ganging up on him and I warned him, he said, they can't fire me. This is my company. Look over there. That's my name on the wall. And uh, two weeks later, he was fired. Yeah, it's not hard to change the name of a company. So David, thank you so much. And I'm really grateful for what you're doing and what you're building. And we will share more information about the Tory project in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's been a pleasure. And if there's any entrepreneurs out there that are interested in stakeholder capitalism, send them on to Tory project and we'll help them out. Do you have any questions for our securities lawyers and capital raising experts? Call the podcast hotline and leave us a message at 866-552-7726, extension 5. You can also send other inquiries to podcast at jennycasson.com. We'd love to hear from you. Music for the Capital Inside podcast is still searching by Damon Criswell via Audio Hero. Thank you for listening to Capital Insight with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish. Until next time.